Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Tim McLean. He's the executive chef over at Mita's here in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you don't know too much about Mita's in the story, so it's pretty much the restaurant that's kind of credited as bringing the food scene in Cincinnati back, making it more of an independent restaurant scene, you know. Other than them, it was really Masonette, which eventually turned into Boca under David Falk's watch. And then once Mita's opened, that's kind of when the start of the revival happened with Cincinnati and the food scene and getting away from kind of all the chains and everything that had come into the city. So Mita's, it's been nominated year after year for a James Beard Award. Jose Salazar was nominated for Best Chef Great Lakes for like five consecutive years. And then the COVID break happened and everything. And in this past year, Mita's was nominated for the Outstanding Restaurant category too as well. So every year, you know, they're getting accolades or on the Cincinnati Magazine's 10 Best Restaurants list. They're always on there too as well. So um, we've been there a number of times. They're one of the few restaurants that are open on Mondays in Cincinnati, uh, which is awesome too as well. If you have a trip there or whatever, and it's like, where am I going to eat Monday? Most places are closed. That's usually an off day in the industry. They're open and you can go in and have a great meal and go to a great restaurant on a day when nobody else is really open and you thought maybe you weren't going to have anything special. So a uh, personal favorite is the ceviche of the day, but all the food's delicious. There's always kind of something new to order. They have some specials and stuff that they do too as well. But Really wanted to have Tim on, just chat about his career. He's kind of a local guy uh, in the Cincinnati area, has spent some time in the industry. That's where he went to culinary school too as well. So he's kind of a mainstay there and wanted to chat about his career and being at Mita's and kind of the difference and, and culture and perspective and everything. So it's been awesome to kind of follow Tim's career. You know, he's worked at a couple really infamous places in the Cincinnati area that are always among the best restaurants kind of on any of the lists. Now he's doing his thing at Mita's and running the kitchen there on the day-to-day operations and tinkering with the menu and putting new stuff on and taking stuff off too as well. So super integral part of the next stage of Mita's and the success as Jose has expanded his restaurant group and he's got two other restaurants, Goose and Elder, which is just outside of Finley Market and uh, Salazar's, which is in the OTR, just like one street off kind of the main like vine street there so but you can follow tim on instagram his handle is at chef tim mclean you can also follow the restaurant on instagram too it's at mita's cincy so m-i-t-a-s-c-i-n-c-y you can also follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mom check out the website spoonmob.com all different contact information food photos from all of our guests that we've had on the podcast links to their episodes that they've been on too as well there's a little page with a master running list too as well so you don't have to go back through like the app and keep hitting load more if you're trying to get back to an old episode um, or one of the earlier episodes that we've done with someone and uh, you can write in questions comments feedback too as well through the portal on the website or Send it to us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com is our email that we check. You can follow us on YouTube or any of the podcast apps. Google apparently is going away, Google Podcasts. They're integrating that with YouTube Music, that app. So if you use Google Podcasts to listen to any podcasts or follow us there, you're going to have to pick a different platform. So kind of the same deal with Stitcher. It seems like there's a consolidation within the industry in the podcast apps. Everybody pretty much uses Apple or Spotify. You can use Amazon Music. I use Amazon Music just because I get a discount 
on the music subscription that I use through them because we have Prime. But Apple does the same thing with their Apple Music thing. I think if you have like Verizon, you can get six months free of it or something like that too as well. There's always kind of a, a deal floating around out there. But Google Podcasts is being merged with YouTube Music. There's no real timeline when that's going to happen. But knowing Google, it's going to happen abruptly and without warning outside of the email that they sent out to everyone the other day. So you do have some time to switch. I don't know how long that's going to be, but you can also follow us on YouTube. Uh, we have a channel up there, so we put all the podcasts up there too as well, but uh, we should be available on YouTube Music. It's all kind of integrated in one platform, but just wanted to make sure everybody was aware in case you're one of the people that follows us on the Google Podcast app. Also make sure to vote for us for the Best Community Partner Award at the Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards for this year's uh, nominees and everything. Voting closes on September 30th, so you got a couple days left if you haven't voted or if you want to vote again or whatever. Go ahead and throw us a vote. We'll post a link to as well, but you just go to OhioRestaurantAssociation.com. It's pretty much on their main page. And there's little drop downs for each category and you can select who you want to vote for. But that is it for the updates uh, for this week. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Tim McLean, who is the executive chef over at Mita's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day. I know you got a lot going on. I wanted to have you on because you're at Mita's. It's one of the premier restaurants in Cincinnati. I think it's pretty much credited with reviving some of the food scene in Cincinnati when uh, Jose Salazar first opened it. And you're there uh, running uh, the kitchen and everything, right? We've been there. We've also been to Bouquet when you were there too as well a handful of years ago. I think that would have been like 2018, maybe something like that. Went back and tried to find photos from it. Uh, I could not. Yeah, we went there and, and we've been to Mita's. Mita's is an awesome restaurant. One of the few that's open on Mondays too as well, um, which is also awesome. But I want to get into kind of how you wound up there, what you got going on there too as well. But I was like, start at the beginning with everybody. You know, how did you kind of first get involved in the industry, get involved with cooking? Like, was that just something in high school? Was that... Friends and family were always involved, and you kind of followed that path. Well, thanks for having me on uh, the podcast. I'm stoked to be here. Uh, in short, uh, punk rock, man. <laughs> Growing up, I was always in a band from about 14 years old um, in high school, and we collected a lot of popularity in the high school, and then we started playing shows. And that was like my dream, was I went to uh, perform for being a punk rock band. One of the guys in the band was working at this reception hall, and just doing dishes, a little bit of prep work and stuff like that. And I said, hey, man, I need a job. I'm going to come to work with you. I think it'd be cool. And so I started doing dishes there. And I was about 14, 15 years old. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole deal. It was just chaotic. And it was just a lot of fun to be around, even just being a dishwasher. And I slowly started saying, hey, guys, can I come over and like do anything to help out? I can knock these dishes out in 30 minutes, man. Can I do anything? Finally, they, you know, they give me the task. They don't want to give me a dull knife and say, hey, break down 40 uh, pineapples. And so I'd sit there and, and do that. And I just loved having a knife in my hand. I loved the heat of the kitchen. It was a lot of fun. So at that point, I got kind of enthralled by the whole scene. and But never at any point was I really like, hey, I want to do this. Actually, it's kind of the opposite because I was the guy, you know, working weekends as a 16-year-old, missing out on the parties and whatnot because I was doing dishes until 2 a.m. And I was thinking, man, that would kind of suck, right? To, to your life, you're going to be working every night and weekends. I definitely don't want to do that. So it's kind of weird that I kind of fell in love with it, but also decided, I don't know if this would ever be for me. So that was like 
my first experience in a kitchen and I did it for a couple of years and uh, it was a lot of fun, but uh, I never really imagined doing that. But then going back to being in a punk rock band, play a lot of punk rock shows, but punk rock shows don't pay the bills. So I constantly was like just going from one food industry job to the next. And that's how I got through until until the band took off. I actually, we did a lot of touring and playing cool shows. And I got to play with a lot of guys that I uh, grew up idolizing, No Effects, The Misfits. It was it was a cool run, but eventually I said, I'm gonna give myself to 30. If I, if I make it to around 29, 30, and I'm not self-sufficient financially off of the music thing, I got to figure something else out. Um, so I bounced around till then just taking on different jobs, none of them really very serious. And then when I got to that, that point in my life, I said, Hey, I gotta do something different. So I went to culinary school and that's where like the serious run began. Yeah. I honestly was never even huge into the cooking shows and all the stuff that people got into, but Along the way, because I had all these jobs, I cooked all the time. And my even my dad would be like, "It's like you kind of got a knack for this. You kind of even just simple stuff. You'll doctor it up and make it nice." And so I, I knew I had a little bit of a talent there. Yeah, it wasn't until about thirty that I decided, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this serious. I'm gonna go to school." And before that, uh, while I was in the band, I also went to school for visual arts. So in a sense, a series of creative failures led me to. To going into food really taken seriously i was like I, I i can't i can't lose again so i i really had uh i was really dedicated to to making sure that this time it worked out and i took the schooling very seriously and my stages and i i just everything just revolved around food at that point the food thing became it was a total goal it wasn't just i'm making food or i'm deciding to be a chef it was something that's like i can't fail at this and i just let it completely consume me and i loved it i felt an absolute love with it you are now the third person from Cincinnati that we've had on that was in a band. So Dave Willicks, which I guess technically is Kentucky, but just across the river, he was a jazz musician. Tyler Stemmer was in a band for a long time, also kind of a punk heavy metal band. I think it was like the Roaming Goats, maybe was the name of it. You mentioned kind of setting the benchmark, you know, but you're doing touring and everything when you're in the band. When you make it to 30, like really got to take some inventory as to is this going to work? Is it not? But when you're doing all that touring, is it is it van life? Like when you're in that touring mode, like where are you at? Is it tour buses? Is it van life driving show to show? Like it's van life. If you got paid real well and you could stay in like a shitty motel for the night, that was like that was a huge score. So it was traveling around. Ah man, it was like a GMC van with like a twelve foot trailer with like five other, usually six or seven guys because we'd have a couple guys helping out, like kind of roadies or whatever. Smelly ass van, with, you know. By by week two, it'd be like miserable being in there. Every once in a while, you'd play a show in a city, and one of the fans would invite you back to their place, and that would always be cool because then you got a, a floor to sleep on, <laughs> and uh, and maybe a meal or a shower it wasn't an easy life for sure but it was also very exciting as part of the allure of it that was that it was just kind of this whole chaos but yes i know every kitchen you go to it's like we, the joke is like hey we could start a band in this kitchen because it's all these guys that are like yeah i used to be a drummer i used to play i mean right now i got a bunch of guys in the kitchen that play instruments and whatnot so i think that's kind of a common thing where people they're creative say try something the music industry is hard and then you finally i think there's a lot of stories that you fall into the thing that was kind of like, this was just kind of to get me through. I'm going to take this job and that job and I can cook and I can move from one place. I can kind of keep pivoting. Eventually it turns into, oh, well, now I just have a resume and a career that developed kind of on the side. So, yeah, I don't think I'm the only one uh, <laughs> in kitchens that said, yeah, man, I, I tried to do the music thing and it didn't totally work out. 
What's harder, the music industry or the restaurant industry? It's definitely different sets of difficulties. And you can kind of both definitely, there's a lot of indulging uh, and a lot of vices and a lot of the underbelly world, like, you know, playing punk rock shows. If I go to Chicago, I'm, I'm like in the South side of some like, you know, kind of hole in the wall bar. And it's, you know, it, it's not exactly the best place in town. And the same thing with, you know, you know, Anthony Bourdain, obviously was the guy that kind of exposed the, the underbelly, but you know, you have, and it's, it's a little bit different these days, but a lot of those same type of things, you have to kind of figure out a way to navigate through it and become successful without falling into the, to all the traps that are kind of set before you. So both are difficult, more lenient, <laughs> the punk rock world on actual like work, work, like Food taught me discipline. It almost like in the way that like martial arts or something would. It was like you have to be able to harness all of your focus, um, no matter what the circumstances. So way different set of pressure. I think the food and being a cook or being a chef is a constant, constant pressure. You're constantly kind of grinding and grinding. Whereas with music, it's like, you know, you would travel for half the day and then you get to a place and you actually only perform punk rock bands like 45 minutes at the most. So it was a grind and it was hard and it was hard living. But I would say that in general, doing the food thing is is difficult, is more difficult. It's something that you every day you got to wake up, you got to grind it out, no matter how you, you feel, you know, you don't take days off, you injure yourself, you, you're not feeling well, you're hungover, like these things, not, nobody cares, you just do it. You just got to get, get in there and do it every day. Both are very difficult lifestyles, but I would say that uh, cooking is is probably one of the most difficult things that um, that I've ever done in my life professionally. So when you get to the the point where you know you go to culinary school and you decide on Cincinnati State Technical and Community College, what made you decide to go there? Kind of stay local? Was it financial, or was you working other jobs too as well, so you couldn't really go to a different city, a Chicago or a New York or whatever? Yeah, well, part of the story too, I had a, a kid when I was 18 years old, you know, it was always a, a big part of my life, but it was not a planned thing. I didn't really, it's also adjacent to the music thing, met a girl at a concert, you know, find out three months later, she's pregnant. Uh, but I grew up in a like Irish, Scottish, Catholic family, and you man up for your mistakes. And, and so, I, you know, I, and it was never a question for me, I'm going to be a part of this kid's life. And my daughter, Emily, is, is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, but that made me she lived in Georgetown with her mom, and I would get her on the weekends and stuff. But I didn't really want to move too far away from that um, the whole time. So the touring thing also was difficult. I can only do weekend warrior stuff two weeks at a time, because of that, you know, obligation in my life, and how important it was to me. So I thought about trying to maybe get away, but it was kind of at a pivotal point in her life. She was getting a little bit older. I didn't want to be too far away. Um, I was also in a relationship, was rooted here in Northern Kentucky. And so it just, I kind of figured that no matter where I went, I was going to take this seriously. And I was going to, I was going to just going to drive, drive, drive. I didn't need to go to a CIA in Hyde Park. I didn't need to do all that stuff. Also, I didn't have the money for it. Like Cincinnati State was was much cheaper. And when I was going there, it was actually, it was awesome. The the uh, instructors were great. It was a great opportunity. I really got to do some amazing stuff. Like we had like Adam Danforth, uh, James Beard, butcher, um, award-winning butcher and writer came in doing demos. Um, we were, we set up some of the walk-ins, me and one of my instructors, uh, Danny Bungenstock into uh, some walk-ins that just weren't being used. We made one a dry aging cooler and then one was more for curing and we were doing some really cool stuff. So it wasn't, you know, the same caliber in a certain sense as maybe some of these bigger schools, but um, I think we were doing some really cool things and I really enjoyed it. And I think it was very beneficial for my career. 
So based on your experience, you know, you said you got guys in the kitchen that have been in bands, but you get somebody in the kitchen who wants to be a chef, you know, chef owner of a restaurant one day, they kind of ask you, should I go to culinary school? What are you telling them? That's funny because I I get that a lot. Here's the deal. I I don't think that anybody has to go to culinary school. It's all about dedication and drive. You can have that same type of uh, experience on your own. Um, You can find the right kitchen to be in and take it seriously. and, And that'll get you where you need to go. But personally for me, like I said, I needed the discipline. I needed the I needed the structure. I needed the, the feeling like I was moving towards this goal, and very very quickly, I had to expedite my process. I wasn't doing this. I mean, I get a lot of guys in, I'm even seventeen years old. They, you know, some of these schools they let them do trade stuff, and and, and you get you know twenty year olds, twenty two years. Old. I actually have a pretty young kitchen right now, and. If I was at that age, would I have done it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, I wouldn't have been as it wouldn't have been as uh, important as it was to me at that point in my life. So for me, yes, it was. I think it was the the best move I ever did. Also led to a lot of other opportunities. It led to a lot of networking um, that really helped me out, place myself in the city and and know people and do uh, cool events and stuff that got me you know connected with other people. So it was very important to my career. I don't think that anyone has to do it. But I, you do get that question a lot. Usually it's kind of in a negative form. Like, oh, you, you pissed, you threw your money away at culinary school. I'm like, no, man, I didn't throw my money away. It, it, it really led me uh, to where I'm at. And I'm really grateful for the mentors and teachers that I had. Now, sometimes you're in a class where you're doing some antiquated stuff that you're like, you're never going to use in the real world. And you, you think, man, they should probably update this curriculum. But that's almost any type of school. Uh, there's a lot of schools that really need to be kind of updated. But so yeah, I, I tell them it's not necessary, but you need to have the discipline and drive. It's This isn't all about like the the cool guy in the kitchen with with the tattoos and the fire and the and I get drunk every night and blah. But it's I mean, it's not about that. If you want it to be about that, it's fine. But you're probably not going to make it that far. It's about the food. It's about the love for the craft. And I think that the discipline and the love for the craft is instilled uh, was instilled in me uh, at school. So I'm really uh, grateful that I had that opportunity. What was the one class or event at culinary school that you thought benefited you the most? And then what is one thing that you wish the culinary school would have taught you knowing what you know now? So I think my butchery class uh, was very, very important. It was like technically like butchery and like garmage. But like I said, you know, getting up at seven o'clock in the morning, going into a cooler for like six hours, watching demos and doing breakdowns. It's kind of intense. You know, it's like you're in 40 degrees. You're trying to get your fingers to work and I thought it was, I mean, I was, I fell in love with it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, and then just getting the opportunity, we're getting like Mangalisa pigs from like uh, Travis Hood and stuff at the time. There's a lot of really good, good connections that came out of that. I'm really passionate about the butchery and doing things of that nature. So that was really important to me. And like I said, the, the teacher that I had, had ended up bringing in Adam Danforth at some point. Then I went back after I graduated, uh, was a teacher's assistant to him uh, teaching the butchery class. So in a way, it was a way for me to take the class again, like get to get to go through all now that I know what I'm doing. Now I get to go through all of it, get a chance to teach, which I was thinking I might be interested in. And then also just the resources. And a lot of it was being able to have a whole hog to break down. You know, where else am I going to get the opportunity to do that? So I would go in at like seven o'clock and teach this class. And then I would go to work. And so I would have days that went from like seven until like 12. And these are the type of things looking back, it was like, it almost broke me, but it also made me really, really good. And and once you kind of go through that pain of like, that's kind of what the industry is, right? You know, 
you work a 13 hour day, you got your ass kicked. Now you got to, you know, you got to restock the whole kitchen prep day. Next day, it's going to be super hard. And, you do, and so you get used, I think that kind of helped me get used to that type of endless focus and dedication of, of your brain to what you're doing. And um, so that was the most important class. And that led to other stuff for me too. I actually did a competition uh, in Spain, which was brought on to me by uh, my instructor, uh, Danny Bungenstock, which is another interesting story. I was helping teach that class and then uh, went to work. And at about, I don't know, 10 p.m., he starts blowing me up. And says, hey, you got you to gotta get online. You got to do this thing. You got to submit something. You know, I, I got this uh, opportunity. It could be really cool. The Rioja region, uh, wine region of Spain, they're doing a competition for culinary students that uh, basically you pick out a wine and you try to match up a dish, like it's a tasting menu, a tapa to go with a certain wine from their region. And I was like, yo, dude, I'm, I'm at work. I'm gonna be here for another two hours. Like it has to be in by noon tomorrow. I'm like, I don't fucking know what you expect me to do here, man. I don't know how serious it was. It was an international competition. I didn't know what my chances were to get in. I was, but I went home and I said, okay, I got, got online and <laughs> I never tasted any of these wines. I'm just like looking at flavor profiles of wines online. And so I found one that I thought sounded really cool. I wrote this dish, I submitted it and I made it to like the semifinals and there was like one more step online and I ended up you know, winning, you know, out of, I guess, American side, I think there were six people, I think it was, it was like Germany, Mexico, America, Spain, Ireland, I think. But anyway, so yeah, I find out, okay, cool, we got this deal. I'm like, what does this mean? What are we doing? He's like, well, I'm gonna go with you, we go to Spain, they're basically to pay for everything. They're gonna, um, they're gonna wine and dine us, man, they're gonna take us to all these awesome restaurants, we get all these awesome wineries, and then you're gonna do this competition. It's about a 10 hour deal, but you just have to create that dish that you uh, submitted. And so now you have one day to get a rec sheet in to get all your ingredients together and blah, blah. So it was chaos. And I was like, crazy excited. It, it reminded me of when I, I found out that I was playing with no effects. And I was like, running around my apartment, like, Whoa, are you kidding me? I'm playing with my my idols, you know, so and this was that same feeling like, Oh, my gosh, I did it. I'm going to Spain. And this is gonna be so rad. Yeah, we ended up going and it was an amazing experience. Got to eat at all these crazy restaurants, see these new school wineries, the oldest ones. It was wild. And then the competition was uh, was like, it was like a blur. It was insane. And what I thought was actually very interesting in the middle. So you start you, uh, like, I don't know, 10 a.m. or something, you start cooking and getting things ready. And we're at the Basque Culinary Institute, which is like state of the art, beautiful. It's like a seven year program for them. It's like going to, to be a doctor, you know? And so we get there and I'm just like kind of in awe of this kitchen, like, whoa, this is so cool. And then I realized that everything's in Celsius. And I was like, okay, I got to figure things out real quick. But we get into the competition and then right around like the three, four hour mark, which is funny because we definitely didn't need all this time either. But I was like, okay, I got to figure out how to like play all this out. Uh, they're like, oh, we're going to go upstairs and the students are going to cook us lunch. And like how it is in Spain, lunch lasted for like two hours. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like, guys, can I get back to the kitchen, please? I, I'm getting unfocused, like trying to give us wine. Or something. I don't want any wine, man. I had lots of wine last night. I want to get back to my dish. I want to win this competition. I ended up getting second place and it was an amazing experience. The kid from uh, Spain won. His dish was awesome. I had all these guys come up to me. I had to present my dish. Like, you know, I had to learn how to say this stuff in Spanish. And it was all of these like food critics and, you know, at this table, I'm explaining my dish and whatnot. And then afterwards, I thought I won because everyone was coming up to me. Your dish was amazing. And, and, you know, it was, you know, going on and on. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And then I found out basically I, I didn't present it as like a tapa. Like they said, if I would have had some type of 
base to my dish, like a it could have been a you know a tostada or a cracker, you know, baguette. It didn't matter, but mine wasn't really sitting on anything. It was more of just a small plate dish than it was like a real tapas. So like we thought that your dish was amazing, but it wasn't really what we were. It, you didn't exactly hit the nail on the head for what we were expecting out of out of the dish. And it was really just my ignorance on what, you know, true tapas were all about. I was more of like an understanding of like what we call it in America. And it's just kind of basically small plates going with uh, wine and whatnot. So that was unbelievable. And I even remember one guy, I, I don't even remember who all these people were, but they were all important people in the food and wine scene and said, I can't wait to come back. You know, I think you should have won that. I can't wait to see you in, in your Michelin star restaurant years to come and whatnot. I just remember being so like empowered by this whole experience. And it was super cool. And then, of course, you know, later on going to Mita's, um, that all coming together was very like cathartic, you know. And but that's where I fell in love with tapas and fell in love with Spanish food. Uh, like it was such a romantic experience that it's like anybody would, you know. So it was the butchery class led to all these different relationships, led me to this competition. And I had a 25 hour trip back from Spain. And the next day was my final at Capstone in culinary school. And he was my teacher. And we're both, you know, we were just like, hurting and tired and I can't sleep on planes for the life of me. So I didn't really sleep at all. And after the competition, they took us out drinking until 4am. And it was like, we get to the airport, uh, to CVG. And I'm like, Hey man, can I like reschedule? Like I do this and that he's like, dude, you just almost won this competition in Spain. I don't think you need to cook a chicken breast and do a starch and make a sauce. We got you, man. It's okay. If you want to come in and do that for me, that's fine. But, uh, so that was the end of my school experience. And then as far as the, what do I wish that they would have taught, you know, a lot of these programs are focused on French food and these classical French techniques to dive a little bit farther into other cuisines, like giving some like amazing cultures, you know, a 30 minute thing in, in their curriculum and do one, you know, hey, we're going to do one, you know, pad thai for thai, and, and not really giving these other amazing cultures and cuisines the justice that they deserve. It would create more diverse food in the community if people were more uh, excited about stuff other than like American and French food. So maybe expanding their the cultural significance of their program and their international class would be important to me. So after you come back from the competition, graduate culinary school, essentially, what happens? Do you wind up at Bouquet right after culinary school or is there something in between? By your second year, you have to do a uh, an internship, and so I went to uh, to Bouquet and I staged there and really dug it. I kind of knew one of the guys actually through the punk rock band. I, he was uh, you know been to some shows and stuff, and so I kind of like hung out with him. Uh, Andy Krishkal, who's now he's the chef there, still at Bouquet, uh, really talented. So I really dug the whole thing. Just it was a small kitchen. It was farm to table. It was really based in sustainability. It was the kind of food that I like cooking. It was kind of Southern. It was new American. And it was a teaching kitchen, which was really important to me. Is so they were very much into like, hey, we're going to sit down every Tuesday and we're going to talk about the new menu. Anyone's invited and you can come bring whatever ideas to the table that you want. To me, that was very uh it was very cool. It was super respectful of all your employees. And it was inspirational because um, I would sit there and I would write recipes. And, and you know, most of them would be like, yeah, dude, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we're just going to like, we get what you're going for. But that's how I learned. That's how I learned too. And then, or maybe it was a cool dish and like, okay, well, how are you going to pick it up? I'm like, ah, I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. How are you going to plate it? Well, 
I don't know. So I started realizing how to fully formulate dishes because at a young in my career, my true career as, as you know, a cook. So I thought that was really cool. So I went there, I staged, and then I staged at Mita's. Mita's had just started. It was like the first couple months. And I really dug it, but it was like this big kitchen with tons of like, uh, you know, Guatemalan cooks running around that barely spoke English and they're yapping at each other and moving fast and stuff. And it was intimidating. And, you know, and Jose comes in, Hey everybody. And he's, you know, very huge personality. And it was a lot, it was a lot to take in. And I did service and I was, uh, it was a very fast paced service. It was very different because it was tapas. It was rapid fire. It was, it was very, it was like a different world. It was a little bit of culture shock. I loved it. I didn't think I was ready for it. I also wasn't sure I wanted to do the food that I was doing at Bouquet. Spanish food wasn't, I didn't really have much of a, and Latin American food, I didn't really have much experience. Like I said, once again, like I said, as far as like international class and cooking on my own and doing my own research, but professionally I had no experience doing Latin American food. Some of the other stuff it touches, Peruvian, Nikkei cuisine, Japanese food. Like I just didn't, it was a lot for me to, to think about. So I end up taking the job at Bouquet instead of Mita's, which it's funny how things all turn out. But I ended up staying at Bouquet for six years, and it was a, an amazing experience. And you know you're in a good kitchen when your biggest problem is, I need to move up. I need to get off the station. I need to move up. But everybody wants to stay. They would keep employees for a very long time there. And that's a testament to, uh, to Stephen Williams and what he's done with that kitchen. With Bouquet, how much of a challenge was it to get people to come across the river to get to the restaurant? Because you get these weird situations, right? Where like Cincinnati, you have just across the river, a bunch of different restaurants, Covington, Newport, right? There is this sometimes weird apprehension of people like, I'm not going across the river tonight. Like that's too far, even though it's not. But it's just this mental thing. Like we have it here in Columbus where people out in the suburbs are like, they won't go downtown and it's like, it's a 20 minute drive or whatever. And it's like, eh, it's too far. Like we're gonna do something local. And it's like, this is only 20 minutes. Like it's not far, but how did you guys kind of overcome that challenge of people sometimes not wanting to come across the river to make it to the restaurant? Yeah, that's definitely a thing. I grew up in Northern Kentucky. So I, I have some, most Northern Kentucky, but I do have some like country boyfriends that live out and they're like, I'm not going down the hill or I ain't hitting the river. And you know, it still was only like 20, 25 minutes, but it seemed like such a, like a journey to some people. So yeah, I think it definitely was a challenge just, just to stay on the map, you know, just to be part of the conversation. Uh, and back then, Covington is not, you know, it wasn't what it is now. Covington now has a lot of stuff happening. They built it up like massively, a lot of cool restaurants. Um, it's more of a, a, play, a destination place where you go, oh, I'm gonna go down there and have a drink, try out this restaurant. Back then, it, it really wasn't. And I remember just from partying down there uh, in my younger years, seeing Bouquet, I had no clue. what I thought it was like a florist or something. You know, I had no clue it was a restaurant. It was a small place, Bouquet on it. Um, and back then, I don't think they even had like the, like the pig logo and, and stuff. They kind of made it a little bit more obvious that it, it wasn't it wasn't a florist or something of that nature. Steven was really good at marketing. Um, I think that he really... Uh, doing the social media stuff, you know, towards the end, he had a PR group he was working with that, that helped out a little bit, but he, he himself did a, a lot of work, uh, his connections with, you know, he with Jean Robert and that community and with Cincinnati state. And I think helped once again, and that's what I'm talking about with the, the networking at school and whatnot. Once you kind of get into that, we did the one night, 12 kitchens at the, all the great chefs around the area would do, um, events that Cincinnati state, I think all of those things kind of help Steven and me and myself uh, kind of stay connected and relevant. And then just, you know, the it was hard, but I think the food spoke for itself. 
there was, you know, we worked with a lot of farmers. We we're doing some some cool stuff, and you know, not everything worked out. There would be dishes that were ambitious, they weren't perfect, and there would be dishes that were very, you know, just typical Southern type of cuisine that people fell in love with. Uh, but I think that it caught fire within the culinary community that we were doing. We were pushing the the limits of what we could do, and like I said, he was he was just really good uh, at social media marketing, networking, and it caught traction at some point. And still now, I think there was a, I just saw an article recently that was like best restaurants in Cincinnati reasons it comes and it's in bouquet is the picture on the front of the article. Uh, it's not in Cincinnati, it's in Northern Kentucky. So yes, that was a challenge, but I think that uh, I think it worked out and, and the food and the networking really um, supplied the volume that we were doing. So like you said, eventually, you know, you're there for a number of years trying to move up in the kitchen. And then eventually you wind up going to Mita's and it's post pandemic happens and everything when you join the team there. But what kind of led to finding your way back over there? I didn't really do anything. So I was definitely at the point with Bouquet where they were working with Madtree, opening up Alcove. Brandon Lomax, uh, also amazingly talented chef, was working with Steven on, on that menu. And Andy and I took over the kitchen uh, and I was doing a lot of work and writing a lot of dishes and it's kind of in this like limbo area where you know i said hey man i need to like i need to get an official position you know leading this kitchen or at some point i, I gotta make a move right and so we had a couple conversations and he knew i was a little bit frustrated so one day steven called me up he says hey this just kind of tells you how great of a guy he is during this is right after the pandemic when no one could get everyone quit the industry everyone <laughs> took some time to go hey oh if you're not working every day life can be like this cool so a lot of people quit the industry they you know they realized how hard it was and and left or you know whatever it was just hard to get employees at the time some people were milking the government money or whatever it might be but there's it was just really hard to get employees back in the kitchens and so despite that he said hey man uh jose salazar is looking for an executive chef are you interested and i was like hell yeah i'm interested are you kidding me so okay i'm gonna i'm gonna hook you guys up um i already told him about you he's very interested here's his number blah blah contact him and and that's what i did and we had a really good conversation and i realized i already like had seen him at events and talked to him and stuff i remember having a good conversation with him after um i forget what it was called like off the hook event it was at the newport aquarium which steven put on with chefs all across the nation, great chefs doing these cool dishes in the aquarium with all the fish around, all talk about sustainability. It was just a really, really rad time to meet all these amazing chefs. And then afterwards, of course, we all we all went out. And I remember hanging out with them and thinking, you know, this guy's so cool. He's like from Per Se. He's like this Colombian dude with all these tattoos from New York, from Queens. Like this guy's pretty rad, man. So when I heard about that, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll jump all over that. So I talked to him, we had a good conversation and he offered me the job. So really I was kind of like, it's like I was traded <laughs> from one team to the other, which once again, like I say, I'm, I'll forever be grateful to uh, Steven for all of his mentorship. And then um, having the decency to say, hey, this guy is frustrated. He wants more. This is a good opportunity for him. I'm going to do good by him. He's done good by me. I'll let him move on. That's kind of how it came about. Aside from the style of cuisine between the two, what was kind of the biggest difference going from bouquet to Mita's? Overall size? Was it volume? Like what was kind of the biggest challenge with making that transition? You know, all of those things. It was the style of service. You know, I was used to, we had an expo that, that played it on the outside. So, and we had like, you know, saute, the middle, which ran like the plancha and then an oven, which 
fry everything to temp. And then they had a little tiny fryer. We didn't really fry much stuff there. So we'd all cook and we'd throw our pans up in the thing. And the expo would be over there. And sometimes we'd throw a second expo on. We'd be plating everything. And, uh, you know, tables are coming up together. It was a closed kitchen. It was hot. It was in the summer. We're all, you know, slamming popsicles and ice rags on our necks and stuff. And I went to meet us and it's this huge open kitchen. You know, I was actually a little bit, kitchens can get uh, eh, heated, things can be said, you know, sometimes some dirty jokes flying around, stuff like that. So being in an open kitchen, I was like, I don't know. It's kind of intimidating. I hope I don't do anything that could, you know, look bad on the kitchen or whatever. I just didn't know if I wanted people to be able to view us while we were cooking. So that was like, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be in an open kitchen. It's huge. It's this huge kitchen. There's a big back prepped area. And uh, so I, the first service, I'm just watching Jose and it's just rapid fire dishes. You're not putting up tables together or anything. It's like when the top is ready, it goes out the door and you go as quick as you can. And we suggest three tapas per person. So if you do 200 people in four hours, you know, you see where that goes. You're doing like 600 dishes in, in that amount of time. That's, that's, that's moving. The pace and the structure of service was like, I had to re kind of think around how, you know, service would go. Then the sheer volume, you know, bouquet was always busy, but we would have dead nights, you know, and you get a chance to catch up and, and whatnot. And we'd have really difficult hours and stuff like this, but this was like, start a service, go. It is like, it's on, man. That part of it. And then obviously the cuisine, I didn't really have much experience. I, the minute I took the job, I started like reading, 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 cracking open every book, like buying books nonstop, trying to figure out all these different, uh, you know, just how to work with masa and, and just an understanding of the cuisine in general. Like here I am, I know I'm going to be having to leave this kitchen. And I, my understanding of, I had very little knowledge outside of just like, I like eating this food and it's tasty. And, and I, so I had a lot of work to do to catch up on like, to be able to even run a kitchen like this. So that was a bit intimidating as well. I would come in and prep and it was, you know, like I said, like a lot of these, like these, like these badass Guatemalan prep cooks have been doing it forever. They just fly through empanadas and stuff. I, they don't speak English. I do not speak Spanish at this time, a little bit of kitchen Spanish, but so to communicate, to, to come in as now their boss when they're really good at what they do and be like, you know, try to, Hey, you know, this, Papusa, I, I need it to be, you know, 100 grams instead of like just to be able to communicate small things of what I wanted out of their work was difficult. So that the language barrier was definitely it's I mean, it's still I've gotten better at it. And I have, you know, translation apps and I've worked on my Spanish and whatnot. But that's still a very difficult thing when I can I feel like I'm pretty good at coaching and teaching but and getting what I want out of the cooks. But when it's very hard to communicate, it's it makes things very difficult. So that was definitely probably the biggest thing that I had to deal with immediately moving there. So volume, style of service, learning the cuisine, and then communication, all those things equated to, you know, a difficult situation, but I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was fun. The menu at Mita's, it has a lot of staples on it that are pretty much there year round, like the patatas bravas, the tostones, guacamole, uh, the pan con tomate, like all that stuff is usually there on the menu, but there are some parts that do rotate some dishes that do change ingredients or maybe even the whole dish changes with that. How do you know if a dish is good enough to make it on the menu with there being so many people that when they come in, they're looking for a specific thing that maybe they've had previously, or, you know, it's something that they already enjoy. They want to recreate that experience. So it's, you know, they have these dishes that they love, but you're also kind of sometimes tinkering with some of the few other things. Like, like, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant conversation between me and Jose and 
I really, once again, give him a lot of credit and the way that he handles his kitchen. Uh, really, from the very beginning, he let me have a lot of uh, creative freedom. Like you said, you know, you can take a dish off that's been on there forever and people like would get like irate, like, you know, yo, why did you take this off? This is, this is what I come here for. So it's it's a hard thing. But and then you have to you don't have to one up the dish, but you got to convince those people like, hey, this is why I did it. Check this out. And as much as something might be an amazing dish, at some point as creative people, we just get, you know, we get bored with it. We want to do something new. We want to try something new. We need to give out. We got to change things up to um, keep everyone, you know, it gets to be a grind to keep everyone interested, especially, you know, the cooks. So Jose and I have a constant conversation about dishes and things that we want to do. And so, yes, it's, it was difficult taking certain dishes off and, Hey, is this really going to make it? You know, sometimes you just got to go with it. And he was very good about, you know, he'll let you know (laughs) if something is not of the caliber that he's looking for, it's not going to make it on the menu Um, or we'll do some tweaks or, you know, okay, this is cool. Uh, I think one of the first thing I put on was uh, a pupusa with the head chorizo and, and Monterey Jack cheese and refried beans and stuff. A very classic pupusa and a really cool, it's the Salvadoran national dish. And I had a friend make it for me one time and I really got interested in the curtido. The pickled topping was, it's like supposed to be like lightly fermented. I did in a way that I basically make sauerkraut. I ferment cabbage. Instead of using caraway, um, I would use cumin and and then I would pickle the other items. And so it was like partially fermented, partially like vinegar, vinegar pickle. So I was really excited about doing this dish. And he's like, yeah, okay, cool. And at the time, I was basically replacing the arepa, which is a Colombian thing. So I was basically asked him to take uh, off a Colombian dish and put on this dish I want to do. And he was, he did well with it. Uh, he okay let's try it out and it worked out i'm actually probably about to pull that dish off the menu after you know a two-year run and i'm kind of sad to see it go but once again you know it's just an opportunity to kind of fill that gap you you know sometimes especially with the top as menu it's almost like filling out a baseball team or something you know you gotta represent you know different cultural uh, areas of latin america you have to have spanish stuff on there you always have to have some with you know like with chicken and you know if you have this pork dish, you don't really want to do this dish that has pork on it over here. We'll change that. Let's do lamb instead. And and uh, so you're constantly kind of filling these gaps. And I kind of came up with a system of, of toppings that I thought would work using a variety of different proteins, always having something vegetarian or vegan naturally on the menu, and just trying to fill all these gaps. So it was a very even menu. So you kind of hit all the, all these, and, and once again, all the cultures, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. I want to represent all these different cultures, but it needs to be cohesive. It's not easy. And I remember we took off the fish taco not too long ago. We did this fish taco with Paul Paul Mayo. Everyone loved it. And I was kind of just done. We ran out of Paul Paul. So the Paul Paul, you know, it comes all at one time, which we were about to that season. And we, you have to process it all right away. And so we, you know, back it and freeze it. And then we would make a Paul Paul Mayo out of it. And people loved it. It was a very interesting dish, but I was done with it. I said, hey, I want to do, and I had to take off the chicharron too, which once again, it's like, you know, something that was kind of sacred there for a while. I'm like, hey, I want to do a pork belly taco. I have this like another kind of fermented type of slaw that is really cool. And I, I want to use huila coche and I'm just going to do like a huila coche oli type thing. And uh, like the first week, I remember two or three customers were like, hey, like, why did you take this off the menu? And I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. And then, and I started making our, you know, these blue corn tortillas. I also want to use blue corn. It's like a heartier uh, masa. It's, got a, a different texture to it. I really think it's nice. It's soft. It's, uh, it looks really pretty too. Um, so there's, I just really wanted to start experimenting with a couple different things. And in order to do that, I need to take the chicharron. I need to take the, the uh, fish tacos off the menu. Um, 
but then eventually all of a sudden it'd be sort of becoming some people's favorite dish and now people love it so you just gotta kind of like jump into the water and and hope that it works and at the end of the day if it doesn't you can always put the other dish back on or change something else out but yeah we work closely together i come up with ideas and say hey i want to do this i use features um another thing that is great with we do like about four menu changes seasonally a year you said like you said like the pozole the polpo the empanadas the bravas the sliders those are never going to come off the menu these are staples that uh they make sense there's really not like the bravas like you gotta have a potato on there this is very representative of uh spanish tapas there's no reason it's really good it's no reason to take that off and change it to a different potato so some things are just this is our restaurant this is what it's going to be but there's a lot of other things that change seasonally and we like to use the seasonal ingredients and i think it's one thing that makes us unique when you're doing spanish food but you're using locally forged ingredients from cincinnati like from the ohio midwestern appalachian area you're not going to find that anywhere else it's a nice for lack of a better word fusion of this uh these ing- local ingredients which is what they would do in latin america or spain they would use the ingredients they have around them to make these dishes so we're doing the same thing um and doing some classic dishes but using what we have around us so it's a lot of fun so we do about four changes and then throughout those changes we do little tweaks here and change a couple dishes so we're constantly moving but then the features are a lot of fun that's kind of chef's playground right you, you get sometimes you use a luxury ingredient you know hey we're gonna get in some foie gras or we're gonna get razor clams and blah. you get stuff that's kind of fun to play around with and see what happens and sometimes that's also r&d for a menu change hey i have this idea let's let's try this out see how it goes over okay it's cool and then you know that that becomes a new menu item so with mita's you know jose it's his restaurant he founded it he's got two others in the area been nominated for a number of james beard awards maybe six, seven times probably now. I mean, had a consecutive streak for a while. With that, a lot of people still assume he's in the kitchen there day in, day out, night in, night out, running things. And it's you and you're in there running the kitchen. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with knowing that like 90% of your customer base doesn't understand that you're in the kitchen doing these things and they all think it's like Jose. Not to say that Jose's never there or anything like that. He's got three other restaurants. He's very involved in everything. You know, he's an ambassador for the city. I mean, the guy's got, I think, a foreign trip thing that he did too as well with with taking people. So, but how do you deal with working at this restaurant, this mainstay in Cincinnati, you're running it, you're the executive chef and it's like, everybody still thinks like Jose's in here. Hey, man, I am just super gracious and, and proud to be a part of all of it. It doesn't matter that much to me. I, of course, for my career and for my family and the financial aspect, I want to be recognized, but he deserves a lot of recognition. He gave me this opportunity, and I am just thrilled to be a part of all of this. Um, I will say that I tend to disappoint people when I come out to a table, and it's it's me and not Jose Salazar. They go, oh, who's this guy? Actually, I had a funny one the other night. Uh, there was a kid that came in uh, with his mom. A-, a couple months ago, Brian Young was working with me. He's in the process of opening up uh, Young Buck Deli, which is going to be phenomenal. Like, I'm so stoked and it's something the city needs. Um, but in the meantime, while you're getting everything together, he was working in the kitchen with me. And people found out about it. And uh, it was an amazing experience working with him. Such a talented guy. Just a, just a cool dude in general. Like, uh, Hopefully, we're, that's a friendship that I'll have for a long time. But this kid comes in, and he's like, hey, is Jose there? I want to, I, could you please come out to the table? He's a young cook. Uh, he's very excited. Like, oh, no, Jose's not here tonight. He's like, oh, um, my mom and I were both huge fans of Brian Young. We watched him on TV, on Top Chef, and on Beat Bobby Flay. And 
blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, he's, he doesn't really work here anymore. Um, there's just kind of a short thing kind of helping us out and we're help is kind of, you know, a symbiotic thing. We're both kind of helping each other out. And so they're just like, okay, well then never mind. <laughs> I was like, do you want me to go to the table or not? They're like, uh, I don't think they really want you to go to this. <laughs> I don't think they really care. Yeah. I mean, some of that stuff is, I think that's how it's kind of, people sometimes look at it like that and then they don't you know most customers don't know how it works they think that yeah jose is there every night and they don't kind of see the bigger picture i mean he has got his hands on everything i've never seen somebody with with the grind and drive and energy and stuff that jose has so he's definitely in and out of the kitchen a lot checking in on things and like i said we do a lot of collaborating on dishes and just the conversation he took us a bunch of chefs to new york recently and just to try out a bunch of cool food and elevate the conversation that we're having about food and so that was really cool yeah just a great guy i'm just honored to be uh you know in the, spoke in the same breath as his restaurant and him himself so I, i'm just very proud to be there like last year you did a uh wine dinner the guthrie family uh wine dinner i think chris from parcel brought in the wines and he's been on this podcast but when you do an event like that like a wine dinner a one-off dinner how do you approach creating the menu for that are you trying to basically match the new dishes with wines because those have already been like selected ahead of time so you don't really have any say so in like oh i have this great idea for a dish but doesn't fit the profile and it's not going to match up with this wine so is it more of an experimentation for you where you can kind of try new things and and see what kind of works what doesn't and kind of push yourself or maybe it's other things that normally you wouldn't be able to get on the menu or are you just focusing on trying to get everything as close as possible to kind of match up since it is this, you know, one-off event, you know, it's maybe not regular guests that would come in the restaurant. So it's like, Hey, maybe they will come back if they have a great experience here. Like, how do you kind of approach it? Well, usually we come up with some type of like concept, like what are we trying to achieve here? And really the last one we kind of end up calling like kind of like eclectic because there wasn't really one cuisine or one thing that we were focusing on other than it working with the wines. So it's a, you know, it's a creative process. You know, Jose and I both might have ideas of what would be cool and we chat about it and okay, well, yeah, but this wine, we already have this dish that I think would work with this. And this other dish we're talking about would probably pair up with that same wine instead of this one. So let's ditch that idea. And it's just that, you know, kind of just talking it out and it's also a cool opportunity to use to once again, like luxury ingredients, like say, okay, well for this, we can get in like let's get in some truffles and let's get in stuff that we normally wouldn't probably put on our menu just because it's, um, you know, the price point. And we try to keep tapas at a reasonable price. So you can try a bunch of stuff and you now it's not some kind of crazy experience uh, financially where you go, oh, man, I spent a lot of money. So it's an opportunity to use some cool ingredients and explore that. Uh, and then, yeah, once again, we, it's Jose and I usually have a conversation about what what do we think would be inter- interesting and what are we going for here and time of year decides some of it, you know, with once again, ingredients, but also just, you know, I'm not going to put the middle of summer, I'm not going to put some heavy Spanish stew dish, although it works with this wine on the menu or on the tasting menu because it's, you know, it's kind of out of season or, or whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's just a conversation. There's no real one way to go about it. We just kind of sit down and go, okay, here's the wines. Here's kind of the flavor profiles. Let's taste the wines. What are we thinking? Nick, our beverage director, you know, is really good at coaching me who still getting a, more of a bourbon guy, but really getting into uh, the nuances of wine. He can kind of further explain, hey, these are like what you're supposed to be tasting. This is what I get out of it. What do you get out? We have a conversation about the wine and we say, 
okay, well, cool. I'm thinking like if we're going, you know, Latin American, these two ingredients make the most sense. Let's start there. And then you kind of, and that's usually where it starts. Like maybe like one thing you're like, oh, that's cool. Or this red wine, it's like full body, like, like lamb or something with a really heavy flavor would be perfect with it. And then you start building that out. Like, okay, but how, you know, what are we going to do? Well, let's take, you know, the loin and then let's do like a duo. We'll do the loin and we'll do a braised part and we'll top the braise. And so then it just kind of builds and builds. And that's the fun part, right? Of food is like that conversation of, uh, and, that, and that's one thing I really loved about working with Brian Young. He was really great at that. Uh, no ego or anything. It was just like, Hey, I think this idea is super cool. And he's like, yeah, well, I have this thing that I used to do. And I think it worked perfectly with that. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's great. And then I go, Hey, I got this thing. And then just kind of like you get excited. Right. And that's, that's fun. That's what, that's when you, when you realize, Oh man, there's a reason why I miss the birthday parties. I miss the weddings. I don't get to see my kids as much. I, this is why I do it because I'm passionate about it. I love it. It gets me excited and I don't think I, I could have it any other way. So February this year, Cincinnati magazine named Mita's the best restaurant in the city. Roughly around the same time, Mita's was named a semifinalist and later on, a couple months later, a finalist for the James Beard Outstanding Restaurant Award. What meant more to you and what meant more to the restaurant out of those two? Well, I mean, I think any any aspiring chef, cook, whatever, like in America, it's like to get a James Beard Award is always going to be like a, a target goal, right? To be a part of, of that conversation is validating it's a creative field man like i i think anybody that does stuff like this you you know you don't always nail things you get insecure like you need sometimes you need a little bit of validation uh to say hey man these dishes are dope like you're doing the right thing um this is different this is cool so <clears throat> the james beard thing was you know obviously amazing when i found out about that the number one cincinnati also you know once again being at bouquet bouquet was always on that list being from northern kentucky sometimes we thought maybe we should have been a little farther up the list and maybe we're on the wrong side of the river or whatever but nevertheless it was one of those things that now it's the one that you look every year you go okay who made the top 10 who's you know top dog and then everyone shit talks about the people and head of them and says you know oh, we're better than them these guys so that both of them were really cool and the fun experience about that was i told i talked about how we went to New York and tried out these cool restaurants, you know, of course, Jose being from Queens, like the amount of stuff we got to do in a couple of days was insane because he can zip us around the city and there's all the spots and it was just unreal. I mean, I, the amount of food we ate was disgusting. Like no, no human being should ever do that to themselves, but it was, um, it was unbelievable. The first Michelin, three Michelin star that I ever been to, I went to La Bernadette, great experience. And so we're on the, the bus going back to the airport and that's when we find out about the top 10 i was just like hey tim uh i just got the email you know we just got number one the top 10 cincinnati so i mean what a like a really cool like way to finish off a trip like that that once again was just kind of like a dream eating at all these awesome restaurants so that was real special and we're with the other chefs in the restaurant group so it was a very special moment so that was kind of the beginning of it. And then after that, it was just a, a whirlwind of really just amazing things. The, all the James Beard stuff and that came right after that. So I don't think one is like necessarily more important to me than the other. I think that it's both very important to the Cincinnati uh, culinary community. And, and I'm really happy and proud that, that I'm a part of that. This summer, I think you did, a, you guys have been doing chef collaboration dinners. You've done a couple this year. One was with some people. Ironically, that I've been on this podcast, you did one with BJ Lieberman and Wesley Grubbs, Jordan Anthony Brown, Andrew Smith. Doing a, a kind of chef collab, is there something that you look to get out of that experience? Like, obviously, you get to meet new people, cook cool food, but is there something when you're formulating all that stuff, like you're trying to pick somebody's brain on on their style of cuisine, or like, 
or is it just about the experience and just doing something different than kind of day in day out grind at the restaurant? Yeah, I think there's multiple things. I think first off, it's just fun just being with around other like talented chefs and just like being like it's just a fun environment. It's not as it's it's almost not as intense as like normal service. It's like it's there's a lighter feeling in the air when you're cooking opposed to what I originally imagined it might be the opposite because here you're around all these talented people and everyone's trying to one up each other. It's not like that at all. We're all friends just trying to do cool dishes, doing what we love. Um so that kind of camaraderie I think is is something that's important and fun. Uh and it does switch things up, just style of service and whatnot that's also something that i think that every once in a while you need to kind of reset uh reset your brain but then also like the different angles how other talented people are looking at food you you learn a lot from that so for me i'm personally just trying to be a sponge and absorb everything that's going on around me and uh, picking people's brains and and then just having fun like you know like i said the grind sometimes can get difficult and so every once in a while having like this a really fun night around all this talent and making really cool dishes and we're all plating together each other's dishes and we're talking shit to each other it's it's just a fun environment you know and so for me and then for the restaurant it's you know it's it's marketing it's it's a way to bring people and that you know sometimes it's a lot of people they're like yeah you know jose salazar is putting on this thing and we love jose we're gonna come in so it's like regulars but there's also i think a different community of foodies and stuff that they go oh man we got to be a part of this and so they come in and they go wow that was like look at how beautiful this restaurant is i mean it's, it's just a gorgeous restaurant and, it, and you can kind of attract people that maybe you wouldn't have di- different cities you know and then like a lot of these chefs from different cities come in and people follow them because they're you know people love what they do and so then we uh we connect with their fan base and so there's a lot of benefits to it um, but for me it's just I, I just try to learn and have fun you're local to cincinnati born and raised in the area right so skyline chili for or against one thousand percent for i love it i it is like the thing that i knew this question would be it. i knew it there's always debate i don't think jose likes it very much you grow up, you know, it's like comfort food to people from Cincinnati. I absolutely adore it. Now, I'm a, I'm more of a Skyline guy. You know, there's also the debate of like, which one do you like? Sky, it's kind of what you grow up with. Like, you're like, oh, Skyline's kind of watery and too sweet. I'm like, I know. And when I'm hungover, it's the greatest thing in the world. Uh, and the mound of cheese. Uh, yeah, I absolutely adore it. And uh, I, all, the, all the talking shit about it needs to stop now. All you other people from different areas, but no, it's. I think it's fun. I think it. I think it creates a cool uh, conversation about food and about Midwestern culture and whatnot. Like, what the hell are these guys doing? Putting like chili on noodles? Not real chili. And I think some people get too bent out of shape. I'm kind of fun with it, but I think people get bent out of shape about it and, and get very passionate about their views on it. I just, I personally like it a lot. I think it's a cool history too with the Greek community and Cincinnati and how it all came about. And then the one Empress Chili was the first one, and then. All these people that worked there started opening up all the other big names you have now, your Gold Star Skyline, Camp Washington. It all kind of came from that one place, which was it, my understanding at the um, it was kind of like outside like a burlesque theater or something. So these guys going and like watching a show and then going and getting some chili and uh and then the cheese thing came later. At first it was like it was just some rendition of a of a Greek dish and then somebody said hey we put cheese on it and i think it was kind of a smart ass movie they dumped a whole shit ton of cheese on top of it and then that became like the thing and even just the the three you know three way four way five way um these were all like these were all you know shorthand kitchen calls i think there's a cool there's a cool story behind it and i think it's delicious and people who think that it's not delicious just don't understand food at all what do you think what do you think 
It's I, so I grew up on the East Coast, so it's not for me. But I mean, I understand that it is an Ohio thing. It is divisive. It is funny when you get some people's opinions on it. But like, my wife likes it, and she's from you know Ohio here. She sounds pretty awesome. It's just I grew up on the East Coast. It's just not for me. You know, like I mentioned, you're you know from the area. So having been from you know the area, even you know with doing the band stuff and, and touring and stuff, and leaving and coming back, but. Why do you think Cincinnati is so overlooked in the hierarchy of, of great food cities? Because most of the restaurants in Cincinnati, I mean, there are a couple chains, but way less chains in Columbus. Most of them are independently owned. Some places have multiple locations, but it's never really the same concept. It's never like Jose, like he's got three different restaurants, but it's not like he opened a Salazar's like, you know, in five different neighborhoods. Right. So why do you think Cincinnati just doesn't get more credit as a food city, as a food destination? Well, I, I don't think it's like a really a, like a travel destination in general. I mean, it's becoming more of one, but I think it's started kind of with that. You know, it's it's landlocked. So it's, there's like, you know, you go like the East Coast, there's all this like, you know, awesome fish and different things that people are known for. Cincinnati didn't really ever have like a true identity as a, a food city, um, which you kind of spoke on. It wasn't like one thing that people like, oh, we got to go to, you know, Cincinnati to get this that or you know it's like now though of course the whole rave with the bear stuff is like oh i gotta go to chicago again italian beef there wasn't really much <laughs> chili the the three ways that was that was our thing and most people were like that's fucking weird man i don't think there was any real true identity i think the masonette um was the first thing to kind of give a little bit of notoriety to the city you know here you know they get this genre bear characters wild hair and he's boisterous from france they they bring him in he, he does this restaurant it's insane it's it's so good it started getting all this recognition so i think that was the beginning of that happening you know there wasn't it didn't really get a whole lot of traction as far as a whole food community and now with all the building up of the cincinnati area in general people are investing in it and and so then and, and it's great for me coming into this time because i always thought i actually told my cooks this the other day when we we're having a meeting you know my biggest worry getting into all this was like i said my family's rooted here i thought if i really want to do what i want to do with food i can't do it in Cincinnati. i gotta go to chicago and work there for a couple of years i gotta go to new york san francisco i gotta go to one of these big cities and, and get like the the big city experience or you know to to be able to to do the food at the level that I wanted to do it at. And it simply was not true. And it, it could have very well been uh, thanks to guys like Jose Salazar, who, you know, relocate to here and start something really special with a pedigree that he has under Thomas Keller and a lot of other awesome restaurants that he worked for in New York. Uh, he instills those same ideas, traits, expectations that you would see in some of these bigger cities. Um, so I think it's on the rise. I think, you know, this year was the first time, you know, having all of this recognition from James Beard Foundation and 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 just in general, I see a lot of other you know travel magazines talking about Cincinnati. I think this is the beginning. This should be the catalyst that that really says, "Hey, we're doing cool stuff here. Like this is worth traveling to for the food." And then I the other thing is the sports teams. We finally have you know the Bengals that are doing really good and uh, over the past couple of years and FC Cincinnati and even. God bless them, the Reds. If they can make another run, they we'll see them in the in the playoffs. It's it just I think that there's a lot of the whole city is starting. It's a different vibe going on. It's it's and I think the people are going to start coming to the city. The 
the weekend that we had the T- Taylor Swift concert and there was a SC game and but it was the city was insane. Like you walked around, and I've never seen anything like it. It was just people everywhere and all the businesses were packed. That's what we need to do is we need to start being uh, smarter with some of these venues that we have. Utilize them, uh, bring people to the city, let them come and eat. If we bring them here, I think that they'll be impressed. What's next for you professionally? I mean, obviously you're running Mita's, but anything on the horizon going on for you special or anything like that? You know, I, uh, a lot of, a lot of good things happen this year. I think I'm going to keep just, uh, riding this wave for a while. I really feel like I'm starting to hit my stride as far as being really educated about the cuisine, efficient at running this style of kitchen and efficient at running a service that can be chaotic. I think the relationship between Jose and I is, you know, developing as something special. Um, we can really work together and do some cool things. So at this point, I don't, I think I'd be insane to, uh, to look anywhere else. Will I be there forever? I mean, probably not, but you know, really my original passion probably wasn't this style of food, but now I've fallen in love with it. And and that's just, it's just funny how the the way that the world works out. Now, anytime I cook at home, I find myself doing a lot of Latin American stuff and whatnot. And I, I, I really enjoy it. So I, for right now, man, I'm just trying to to keep the pace up and do good by uh, Jose and Anne. You know, Anne should be in that conversation too. She's a very important part of the the organization, the, the restaurant group. And I just want to do good by them. Keep creating new dishes. Uh, push myself in this industry. There's there's no time. You you can't lay off the gas at any point. You know, it's you can get passed up right away. So I'm just pedal to the metal, man. Let's keep going. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Sam Hart, who's, uh, the chef and owner at Counter and also Biblio uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. He left behind for you. Who do you want to be in five years? And what would that person in five years think of you now? Ooh, okay. Um, you know, for me, what I want to be in five years is I want to keep being a driven chef that's inspired. And I also want to be a very dedicated um, and involved father. I have, I just had baby not too long ago. I have a 19 year old. I have a three month old. I have a three year old, uh, all girls. I, they're just the most amazing things in the world. And if I can really achieve finding that balance between what I love to do and who I love and who I love to be with, that would make me really, really, really proud of myself. If I can, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing in this industry. You know, you, you tend to miss a lot. And even we had the conversation about having another kid. It's like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm going to take on tons of guilt of not being there. Um, so if I can figure out a way to have a really, um, be really involved in my kid's life. And then also, like I said, not, not lay off the gas and in, in, in my career, I think that would be great. And I hope that that person would look back and say, Hey, you know, this guy, he's, he's working his ass off. He's grinding. He, he cares and, uh, and proud of where I've come in this short time. I haven't, you know, I haven't had a lot of the, the career that a lot of people in my position have had, you know, I didn't grind through tons of awesome restaurants and stuff. And you don't, and to all the young cooks stuff, you don't need to do that. You don't need to go to San Francisco. You I mean, that's great if you do, that means you're driven and you're go and go do it, but you don't need it. If you know, you can, you can do that right here in Cincinnati or wherever you're at. Um, it just takes a lot of hard work. And so hopefully that the five-year-old or Tim will be, uh, will be proud of where I'm at now. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. If there is one restaurant that you worked at and could go back to uh, and run the kitchen, maybe you're like a cook or whatever there, is there a restaurant that you would love to go back to and run that kitchen where you, before you were in a different position? Because for me, I feel like that uh, 
there's a lot of people that pivot a lot in this industry and then maybe sometimes look back and go, man, that one kitchen that I was working at was super cool. So if you can, if you can go back, what is there a restaurant you'd go back to you worked earlier in your career? I don't really have one, but I'm sure other people do. This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you could stage at one restaurant in your city, which would it be and why? Right now, it would probably be Nolia. I love the food that they're doing. I've, I've always been very passionate about that style of food. I also have a little bit of experience in it. And I think I have a lot of respect for Jeff and their kitchen. And, and it's also going back to kind of like the smaller kitchen type of stuff. I think it'd be really interesting to, to pick his brain. Actually, listening to his podcast was inspiring. And I, just to pick his brain would be really cool. The only other one I can think of that would that I think would be really fun to do would be probably like either Machiko or Kiki do something. I love different styles of you know Japanese food like that, that but I don't have a whole lot of experience so to be able to go there and be like okay cool like just show me dude like would be a kind of a different experience of like basically blindfolded coming in and be like show me this world opposed to I think with like something like Noli I could I would have more of an understanding but just really be inspired by the work there so this last set of questions we asked everyone who comes on the podcast nice compare and contrast for the listener across all the episodes who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it to me, like I said, I, I'm not, I don't know if some people would answer this with like, you know, celebrity chefs or guys from, you know, they read all their cookbooks and whatnot. Like I love Sean Brock and these, but you know, I've read a lot of cookbooks, but as far as my personal like journey, Jose Salazar, Stephen Williams, um, two guys that gave me opportunities and kind of coached me through how to be a better chef. Uh, I said, Danny Bunkenstock, Andrew Vogel, these were two instructors I had since the United States that were they were very, very uh, informative and their mentorship means a lot to me. Andrew Vogel worked for Jean Robert for years. He used to do a thing called Eat, Think, Cook, Do. And Eat, Think, Cook, Do. Every week you have to come in with something you ate, something that you thought about with food, something you've cooked, um, something that you've done. And so I still I still use that with my cooks and say, hey, I just think it's such an important thing to, to keep the drive up and keep the, you know, just being inspired. So those are four people that I consider kind of mentors in my journey that uh, I really they have all my respect. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I would say tweezers just to piss off Jose, but I don't really need tweezers. He's a, he's not a tweezer guy. I got fingers. These are tweezers. I don't know if this is kind of a weird answer, but the, cause we're, you said no knives, but like the sharpening equipment, like having nice stones and honing steels and stuff like that to keep your, your stuff in order. I think it's just very important for efficiency. I mean, I don't know. You could you could say a coon spoon or a bottle. It's something that you, you plate with, but I don't. I think the most important thing is keeping your equipment in, in good good shape, and I think that's very important. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario usually a person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled. They reach out to you. It's the one day that you guys are closed. You point them in this direction. You know what? I would say I would say bouquet. I think that they're doing great stuff over there right now, and. It's pretty close to the airport too, <laughs> but I think they deserve to keep getting the recognition for now, you know, quite a few years, what, 14 years or something like that of being open and consistently putting together and also pumping out chefs. Like, you know, when I was there, you know, like I said, Brandon Lomax took over the executive chef of Alcove, uh, Kyle Roberts, who was the chef there when I started is like an innovative chef, like high position at Boca. Danny Combs was one of the first ones, you know, ran Soto and Boca for years, now opening up his his, his place, which I'm sure is going to be unreal good. Um, so the fact that they've kind of constantly turned out chefs that are going all over the city and doing good things, I think that uh, I want to see them be being supported. 
Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you have not been to that you still want to visit. And then also a restaurant that you have not dined at, but you still want to get to one day. I haven't done a whole lot of stuff on like the Upper East Coast. I don't know if I have a specific city, but I haven't really experienced much of that cuisine. You know, you're, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, like over there. I think there's some cool stuff going on that kind of also gets a little bit overlooked. But I, I really have done zero experience traveling there, not even like... I mean, if I would have traveled with a punk rock band, we wouldn't be in any nice restaurants. But I, even like in those days, never really traveled up to the uh, the Upper East uh, Coast. So I think it'd be cool to, to get up that way. As far as restaurant, Joe Beef uh, was my first cookbook that I got. Was and and they kind of invented like that style of cookbook, where it was more of a story and a conversation. And there was cool little quips and stuff like that. And there's been a lot of transformation, I think, with that restaurant. Uh, I know that, you know, for, I don't know if they still are, but the chefs got sober. They were doing a lot of indulging, uh, eating. And so they kind of changed their the way that they looked at things. But for me, uh, I remember seeing the Anthony Bourdain episode where he's with the Joe Beef guys and, they're, and like they're ice fishing and having this crazy French meal in this little type of like shack. Um, but I, I that was one thing that's very nostalgic for me was that cookbook. And I thought what they were doing, this kind of decadent French food that was kind of almost quirky in a way, would, uh, was pretty cool and inspiring. So I think someday, hopefully, I can make it up there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? This is kind of funny. When I was doing that butchery class, I was doing a demo, but we broke down like we were doing like subprimals and I had a bunch of like three bone rib roast and i was teaching the class and sauteing i was basically just searing these off and i had pans of ripping hot oil and i'm trying to talk i've got tongs and i was doing like the fat cap i was rolling them and searing the fat cap and one of them fell over and ripping hot oil all over my hand and i threw it on the tongs and just my skin just slid down my finger i knew it was bad and then it blew up to like i mean i'm talking it was nuts i had it for two weeks I wish I could show you pictures. It was the biggest blister you've ever seen. It was like the size of, I don't know, like a golf ball or something. I don't know. It was my whole finger. And But I was, I was so crazy at the time and just wanted to keep like, – I'm a, I'm a badass cook and I'll just get through it all. I went and worked an oven shift at Bouquet with this huge gnarly blister on my hand. And it was like I almost passed out from the pain of all of it. But without any of the other decadent stuff that maybe – I don't want to get into as far as like for me personally, that was wild. I was kind of in a haze the whole day, kind of blurred out and just like kind of pushed through it. It was stupid. I should have been to a hospital. <laughs> food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy, but you just can't help yourself. Yeah, man. Skyline chili. <laughs> It'll give me heartburn. I know it. It's okay. I'm not a big sweets guy. So that's kind of sometimes I get into but I do like trash food, you know. I like I like trash food. At some at some point in my life, I hope I kind of run a trash food kitchen. Just sloppy, over the top, horrible for you food. That just disgusting watching somebody eat it. I don't know. It's kind of awesome. This sloppy ass burger too. Like just give me like some super greasy, cheesy burger all day. What is one cookbook you think everyone should own? Once again, I'll give you a couple ones that I think are important to me. Uh, Joe Beef. Uh, their first cookbook, I think South by, if you're going to be, if you're in, in this type of area and you're going to be like Southern food, South by Sean Brock, uh, or really any of the Sean Brock stuff I thought was very inspiring and also very like informative about the Appalachian area and, and what he's trying to do to, to preserve um, even like the, the ingredients, the seeds and the thing that I think is very important. And then one that I'm into right now, because I do lots of fish butchery is anything Josh Nyland, take one fish uh, is an an amazing one 
if you're into fish butchery and 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 just fish in general i just it's he looks at that world and completely different than anyone ever has it's it's really really inspiring and interesting you're probably not going to find that anywhere else and i think finally probably Noma's book of fermentation i think if you're into that stuff this is a great way that's not too like scientific wordy to get into something like that and really know what you're doing i'll throw one more out there too i think uh koji alchemy by jeremy yamansky um i i mean just once again just he's literally like you know writing the book on all things koji which i think is something that people should fermentation things like that curing i think it's something that more restaurants and more people should think about and it's very fun and, and inspiring and, and just the, how you can evoke all these different flavors and stuff out of the ingredients you've been using for a long time is very interesting so sorry it's not one book but those are the ones that i've been into recently favorite uh, dish favorite thing you ever cooked created looking back on your career you can kind of point this is almost like your aha moment you knew you could be a professional chef one day I, I'm not sure if I even remember everything is on it, but that the dish that I did for the uh, Spanish competition, it was a uh, it was a duck breast. I took the skin off and kind of like dehydrated and cheated like a chicharron and served that as like a garnish type of thing. God, what else was on that? We lightly fermented some fennel, pickled mustard seeds. Like I actually, I don't know if it's even allowed, but I, uh, I I did a cured egg yolk that I did at you know at home and brought it with me and shaved the cured egg yolk on top. Can't remember what else was on there, but that was the moment for sure when I was. Like I said people were coming to me and and were very impressed, and the dish turned out really pretty. And so that's when I was like, okay, I'm not I'm not an imposter. I think I I'm allowing myself to feel good about my talent. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that stands out to you about him? If you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV? An Emerald, a Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, somebody that you kind of gravitated towards. When you were coming up through your career? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would probably say Anthony Bourdain. Just his view on food was very interesting. The way he talked about it like made you excited. It made you feel a lot of things. Um, and it was very accurate for what actually being a part of the industry feels like. So I think that was cool. Uh, you know, as far as a specific moment, I, I, honestly, what I just was talking about before, where I saw him like ice fishing and like eating like this crazy, awesome, decadent French dinner with all these cool things with with the the chefs from joe beef uh it just seemed like it was so like secluded and weird and cool that it was like it was inspiring like food can take you to you know the ends of the world to all these different places um it just there, uh, there was many moments i think listening to him talk where it was very inspiring but that's the one that kind of sticks out in my head right now where can people find you social media website plug everything I'm on Facebook, Tim McLean. I'm on Instagram, uh, Tim, Chef Tim McLean. That's pretty much it. I don't do a whole lot of social media stuff, but uh, really Instagram is the way to find me. It's actually kind of one of my my new goals is I should probably be a little bit more present on social media. I take lots of pictures of dishes and, and vehicles stuff that, that I don't end up posting. So at some point, I'm probably going to drop a whole bomb of those on, on Instagram. But yeah, uh, Chef Tim McLean on Instagram would probably be the best way to check me out. Yeah, and Mita's is open Monday through Saturday, 5 to 10, Monday through Thursday, and then 5 to 11, I think, Friday, Saturday. But yeah, you guys are one of the few restaurants that are open on Mondays, which is always awesome, especially like if, if you have a week-long stay in Cincinnati, it, like you're going to struggle to find a place open on Mondays and probably also a lunch place. So it's it's always awesome to be like, oh, you just go to this great restaurant that's open on Mondays. Like It's, it's just so hard to find places that do that. So I know we've done that and 
Um, you know, we got we got takeout during the pandemic from you guys too as well, just because that was the world that we were in. And I was like, yeah, let's just get food from somewhere that's outside of like our city for once or something. So, but yeah, I mean, we've been there a bunch of times, always had great experiences. I'm pretty much a sucker for the ceviche of the day. Um, you guys have done it with a bunch of different fish. Flounder, I think you guys did it with uh, barracuda once too as well, I think. Um, and that was pretty awesome. So it's one of the staples of the restaurant scene, but it's it still evolves. So it's not like, like we touched on, there's some staples on the menu, but it, it's never the same experience twice, even with those things. So it's, you know, can't recommend it enough. It's always great food. We've always had a great time. So it's one of our go-to places when we're, we usually do like an annual trip to Cincinnati and we try and just hit up a bunch of places that we enjoy and or new places we want to check out. And Mita's is always somewhere in that rotation for sure. Yeah, well, thank you. And yeah, thank you for saying, you know, yeah, Mita's on Instagram. It's probably a better efficient way to see what we're doing there. So yeah, check it out. Um, and thank you so much for, uh, for the kind words and uh, having me on. This has been a lot of fun. We'll uh, hopefully be seeing you soon, but uh, otherwise, uh, good luck with uh the newborn new addition to the family uh i know how challenging that can be but you've been through it so i'm sure you're a little bit well versed uh in it but um yeah otherwise we'll be seeing you uh sometime soon next time we're back in cincinnati sounds good brother thanks for having me on big thanks again to tim for coming on the podcast taking some time out of his day he's got a lot going on with a new baby and running the restaurant and everything too as well. So really awesome for him to be able to come on and chat about his career and being in Cincinnati and kind of what the future holds for Cincinnati as a food scene as some of these new restaurants, the Aperture is getting ready to open. We got Wildweed, which should be opening early next year too as well. And some other things that have been announced, uh, Atwood Oyster Bar and a whole bunch of other stuff kind of in the works that's going to be opening over the course of the next six months. So super awesome to see more independent concepts coming up. You know, as he mentioned, Brian Young's working on kind of a deli concept um, that's going to be opening sometime soon as well. So it's just a cool food scene in Cincinnati and it continues to grow and it's going to grow outward too as well. It's not all going to be just compacted into the OTR area like it's been for a lot of years. Walnut Hills is kind of exploding um, the College Hill area. There's a lot of cool stuff over there with Kiki and everything. So if you've never been to Cincinnati, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Different sports events you can go to. All the major concerts roll through there too as well. So it's an awesome time. Short drive from Columbus, short drive from Dayton, you know, not that far from Louisville either. So a pretty central area to to get to if you're in kind of somewhere in that circumference or what have you. But again, follow Tim on Instagram at Chef Tim McLean. You can also follow the restaurant Mita's. It's at Mita's Cincy, Cincy with a Y. Follow us as well at Spoon Mob. You can check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to follow us on whatever podcast app or player that you use. Just click the follow button. Uh, Google Podcasts, as I mentioned, will be going away sometime. It's going to get integrated into YouTube Music. So just be on the lookout for that if you're a Google Podcast subscriber or user. But you can check us out on YouTube. We have the YouTube channel up there too as well. But uh, make sure to vote for us for the Best Community Partner Award with the Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards. Uh, you have till September 30th to cast your vote. If you haven't or if you've done so and want to cast another one, you can do that too as well. But that is it for this week. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. 
and uh, continue to help spread the word. Go visit these establishments, get stuff from these different vendors and businesses that we've featured, help them kind of stay uh, afloat when you can. We try and support everybody in different ways as much as we can, but yeah, things are getting a little weird out there. So with uh, shutdowns and economic stuff, so who knows what the future holds, but um, go and support everybody as much as you can. Places that you love to eat, whether it's, you know, two or three in your city or whatever, you know, anything that uh, you can do and and get an enjoyable experience out of it too as well kind of helps everyone and pushing forward through whatever uh, this next random version of the economy is going to be. So that is it for this week. We will talk to you guys next week on Thursday. Thank you as always and more cool stuff on the way.